The scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 129. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms, nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Oh God, we are thankful for your word. We thank you that you, God, are living and active, that you are speaking to your people. So God, whether we come uh, to worship this morning filled with faith and hope, whether we come filled with doubt and skepticism, whether we come believing or pretty convinced that you are not the God who speaks to us. Would you break into our lives and into our worlds this morning as we consider your word in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I assume that uh, most of us have seen um, Star Wars, A New Hope, the first Star Wars movie that came out. We found out later that it was episode four. Um, uh, it, it was a groundbreaking movie. I mean, it's really this iconic film, not just in terms of like the sci-fi genre, but for film in general. It, it shaped a whole generation. It continues to have an effect to the present day. It's a movie that uh, many could and do relate to because of, uh, of the way that it touches on so many themes. Um, one iconic scene in that movie sort of stands out when... Um, Luke Skywalker and Han Solo and Princess Leia are, are on the run and they've disguised themselves as stormtroopers. And they've been found out that they're not really stormtroopers. I think because one of them's too short, right? Um, and they, they run to hide and they, they go into this room where they think they're going to hide and they've... Um, they've, they've come into a room that they first think is just sort of the, the trash bin and then the walls of the room literally begin to close in on them, and they realize they are in a gigantic uh, trash compactor. And the walls are closing in on them, and they're desperate to escape, but it's no use. And the life is about to be squeezed out of them. And they're doing everything they can think of to brace the walls, but they don't have the resources to save themselves. And finally, at the last minute, R2-D2 intervenes and shuts down the compactor. Somebody outside their situation intervenes and they're saved. 
This morning we're talking about a generation that is feeling the squeeze and like Luke and Han and Leah are desperate for hope. And we're looking at a psalm that, addre- that is addressed to those that are feeling the squeeze that life offers and that life presents to us. And the psalm is offering them hope by pointing to the one who stands outside their troubles and one who can intervene to save them. Psalm 129 is, I mean, just reading this psalm, I don't know how it struck you just a moment ago as Otto read that passage. Sort of like, whoa, this is not one of those happy psalms, is it? (laughs) Uh, Nevertheless, Psalm 129 offers us a glimmer of hope that is not only able to aid us in... um, in preventing bitterness from setting in, but actually helps us as we struggle with agony and the depths of our souls. Walter Brueggemann has this fabulous book on the Psalms, and he, he says that the Psalms can be broken down really into three categories. There are Psalms of orientation, of disorientation, and of reorientation. And uh, Psalm 129 definitely fits into the latter two categories, both acknowledging the circ- that the circumstances of life are often difficult and disorienting, but also reframing our experiences and expectations, reorienting us towards a way of living which provides real medicine for the sick, for our sick souls, and real hope for the transformation of our lives. All Americans, I think, in a sense, can relate to this sense of hurt and disorientation. Um, as we are living through a time where it feels like the pace of change is, 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 is increasing and, and um, cultural shifts and significant division are, are becoming normal for us. But no group is feeling that squeeze more than the generation for which the events of you know, these last several years are gonna be the defining characteristics of their childhood and adolescence. Generation Z. The irony of Generation Z is that most of them aren't old enough to vote yet. And yet they have grown up in a world, they're trying to make sense of a world where they're so deeply connected that you can be both an influencer one moment and canceled in the next. Uh, They have grown up in a world, um, in a country, in this country at least, where we talk about the rise of the nuns, which can be perceived by those older than them as something to lament, but um, cultural Christianity, what Peter, Peter Berger called the sacred canopy, has been removed. And it can be a time to embrace a more realistic but vastly healthier Christianity and church that is set free from the cultural Christianity of the right or of the left. Uh, We could be entering a time where this generation is poised for deep, committed, transformative uh, discipleship. Generation Z is really the first generation that has the potential to experience the benefits of what we've been exploring um, in this series. We've been looking at this series called Generations on Mission over the last several weeks, and we've been using the Psalms as a guide to explore the roles that each of the six living generations has to play in the church. And so far, we've talked about the four generations leading up to uh, Gen Z. And so we've talked about the silent generation, which reminds us of our vulnerability and and, and encourages us to remember God's faithfulness. We've talked about the baby boomers, and we've talked about baby boomers moving into a stage of of supporting and mentoring and funding the mission of the church. Uh, 
as baby boomers control the vast majority of America's wealth, um, enabling a younger generation to step into leadership, baby boomers have a legacy to build. We've talked about Gen Z. We've talked about how it's time for Gen Z to step out of the shadows and step into leadership roles, to disciple, to lead, and to prepare for renewal. And we've talked about millennials. And we said millennials need to keep spreading their wings, but also start cultivating and establishing deep gospel roots in order to have long-term faithfulness and fruitfulness. And so we have two more generations to talk about. And we're going to shift a little bit because really in this series, I've sort of been trying to apply each of these psalms, like talking to this generation. But because of the age of Generation Z and Generation Alpha, um, I understand that there are going to be Gen Zers listening to this sermon, but, and that's great, but we're also going to talk about them because in many ways, I mean, these are our kids, these are our future, um, these are the... Uh, the these are the children that we are building a legacy for. They're the first group that will benefit immediately from a church that is committed to a kind of hope-filled, transformative discipleship. So this week, Generation Z. Generation Z was born between 1997 and 2012, and they're currently between the ages of 10 and 25 years old. Gen Z makes up about 21% of the population of the United States and about uh, 17% roughly of Trinity's congregation. It's a generation that's still coming of age and we're learning more about them. But what we do know is that they're growing up in a world where the pace of change has accelerated dramatically. They were born into a world where the internet is ubiquitous but its effects have not yet been fully understood. Uh, many cultural commentators say that we're carrying out a, gener uh, a experiment, an untested experiment on Gen Z. We just don't know what a digital childhood will produce, although the signs are not terribly encouraging. <laughs> Gen Z has had access to screens from their earliest moments. Um, you know, you can hand a kid a screen in the back of a car to keep them quiet on a car ride. Uh, good parenting? I don't know, but we've been doing it since they were born. <laughs> They're spending more time on electronic devices, less time reading books than ever before. And because of that, they have less face time with their parents or with their friends than previous generations. Unlike their parents and their grandparents, they are living in a sort of filtered silo world where they don't really tend to interact with people older or younger than them. So many of their uh, relationships are mediated through technology and it's leading to a profound sense of loneliness because conversation as an art is being lost. People tend to have mutual monologues or diatribes rather than truly listening or seeking to understand a different point of view. And then you have to add to that the significance of events in the, of recent years, um, events that shaped their childhood and adolescence. A global pandemic, distance learning, the great reshuffle as uh, many, many, many Americans have moved. We've moved three times. Our family has moved three times since the pandemic began. Um, <laughs> that's a lot. They're living through the, the end of the American century. Environmental concerns are becoming a reality that will affect this generation throughout the rest of their lives. Jerry uh, Rondu has an article 
on the Gospel Coalition where he talks about the reality that, that for m- many young people, we've talked about this thing called FOMO, the fear of missing out. But for Gen Z, FOMO has uh, changed not to the fear of missing out, but FOBO, which is the fear of better options. Gen Z legitimately has difficult figuring things out and committing or making long-term goals or plans because the fear of missing out by committing to something and then a better option coming along. He says the average young person's inner dialogue seems to have shifted from what if I don't go and then they have fun without me to what if I commit now and regret it later. Phobo makes... Uh, maybe the reason why, if you spend time with young people, you get texts that say, you know, I'd love to do that. I'll be there unless something else comes up. And so before we like, I don't know, roll our eyes or, you know, smack our foreheads or look at, you know, just kind of say kids these days, we have to have some perspective. Jonathan Haidt, who is a, um, a moral psychologist who teaches at NYU says that Generation Z is experiencing a national crisis. He says, when you look at Americans born after 1995, what you find is that they have extraordinarily high rates of anxiety, depression, self-harm, suicidality, and fragility. There has never been a generation this depressed, anxious, or fragile. And he sees two causes for that. Again, the social scientist says that the two causes for uh, this reality are social media and a culture that emphasizes victimhood. So first, social media. He says that depression rates started to rise sort of all of the sudden out of the blue around 2013, especially for teen girls, but it's only for Gen Z, not for older generations. He says by 2015, it became an epidemic. This is the time frame where 50% of previous generations were now connected to social media and over 50% owned smartphones. It's also the time when Gen Zers were teenagers, many of them. It's when Facebook bought Instagram. Social media is radically changing the mental health of of an entire generation. Jonathan Haidt says, social media and selfies hit a generation that led an overprotected childhood. This is fascinating. He says that for previous generations, the average age at which parents would allow their kids to go outside and play by themselves was seven or eight. For Gen Z, it rose to um, uh, between 10 and 12. So several years later, before we let kids Um, go outside and ride their bikes, play soccer, throw the ball around by themselves. So they're growing up in a world where taking risks and developing resilience in a low-stakes environment is far less common. For a generation to develop resilience, it cannot operate out of a scarcity mindset. In an abundance mindset, you seize opportunities to be creative, but in a scarcity mindset, you're not creative, you're not focused on the future, you're focused on avoiding threats. And so, again, Jonathan Haidt's words, not mine, as Gen Z goes to college, he says they are in the safest, most welcoming, most inclusive, most anti-racist places on the planet, but many of them are acting as if they are entering some sort of dystopian, threatening, immoral world. That's sobering. In an effort to correct the wrongs of previous generations, American Gen Zers are coming of age in a world that is embracing victimhood and where victimhood is supplanting developing resilience. The challenge is to grapple with the reality of victimhood without getting stuck in that scarcity mindset. 
So that's essentially the demographic. Psalm 129 speaks poignantly to all of us, but especially to those of us who have experienced uh, pain, trauma, disappointment, especially to Gen Z, because it speaks to the reality of a world that is filled with trouble, a world that is filled with affliction. So much of the 20th century has been about an attempt to avoid trouble, to marshal technology, to avoid trouble, and yet Psalm 129 speaks to a world that is filled with it. So first, our perspective on trouble we see in verses one through four of this psalm. We desperately need perspective, and this psalm speaks to the reality of our trouble. The, the psalm is written in the first person. Um, he's speaking you know, personally, but he says, I love this, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me. That, let Israel now say is like a, is like a preacher saying, are you with me? <laughs> I'm speaking, but on behalf of all of us. That's, that's what he's doing. He's, this is an intimate corporate connection uh, with a shared sense of pain. What we see in this psalm is that the psalmist is inviting other worshipers to repeat this with him. They've all experienced this. The, the term that's translated afflicted in verses 1 and 2 has a range of meaning, but it's the idea of being confined. It's the, the idea of being hemmed in, of being oppressed or squeezed or trapped with no way to escape. So that's the reference to the uh, trash compactor scene in Star Wars. Um, if you're wondering, <laughs> where did that come from? That's, that's what the sense of being afflicted is. It's being squeezed in on all sides. In verse 3, he describes this affliction like this. He says, they have plowed upon my back. Not only has life been difficult, punishing for the psalmist, he says, but, but those who, the oppressors themselves were cruel and vicious. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long furrows. He, he's speaking figuratively of deep cuts and wounds made on his and his fellow Israelites' uh, backs. Uh, what he's describing is the effects of, of flogging or being whipped, the, the lines being burrowed into someone's back. And so what he's likely referring to is Israel's experience as slaves in Egypt. But in a general sense, he's also metaphorically speaking for the, uh, about the often difficult reality of life. The psalm is speaking into the often disorienting reality of life in a fallen world, and it shows us that trouble or affliction or the sense of being confined and hemmed in by the circumstances of life does not mean that God has abandoned us. Resilience in the face of trouble is what this psalm is, is speaking to, not an attempt to avoid trouble. And this, I think, is especially relevant when we think about the world that Gen Z lives in. Most of us alive today have grown up in a world where we sort of expect that comfort is going to gradually but steadily increase in our lives. That um, the more diverse our world becomes, the more we marshal technology, the more we will be able to avoid trouble and live in comfort. And that's been really the life script for the last, uh, you know, 50 years in, uh, in the U.S. And yet it feels like all of that is being turned upside down. Um, in the last several years. Now we're entering a time where uh, we see um, you know, the reality of war, the threat potentially of more war, pandemic, 
um, that has disrupted life. And the reality is that wars and pandemics have been some of the main things that have shaped history. Um, it's, the aberration has been 50 years without things like that. The 20th century tried to avoid um, trouble through marshalling technology, but now that's starting to backfire. And that means that Gen Z may well be inheriting a world where trouble or affliction is more normative than we have come to believe. So the question then is, how does Gen Z move forward? How, does, uh, how do we as a church prepare this generation to live in a world where trouble and affliction are normative. Well, the first thing we have to do is we have to go to the one who is actually able to address our trouble, not only the effects, but the root causes of our affliction. We have to go to the one who is not stuck in the trash compactor, but stands outside and is able to intervene. So the second thing we see in verses five through eight in this psalm is not, not just the reality of trouble, but our prayer in the face of trouble. Our prayer in the face of trouble. So the psalm talks about this time of great trouble and suffering and oppression from which the Lord delivers his people. And the conclusion comes with really a, a curse on God's enemies. There's a, um, a phrase that is used to describe certain uh, uh, psalms in the Bible um, uh, that are called imprecatory psalms. And so the, the word imprecatory comes from a Latin word imprecatio, which means and invoking of evil or a cursing. And the, the curse, the, the, the author of the psalm is sort of calling on God to do justice and turn away those who are bringing trouble on God's people. The curse expresses the anger that is built up towards their enemies. Verse five, he says, may all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned back. Their enemies have oppressed and shamed them and now, um, the psalmist calls for justice and says, God, would you give them a taste of their own medicine? It's a cry for justice. The psalmist prays for their assault on God and his people to be turned back against them. It continues in verse 6. Verse 6 and 7, let them be like grass on the housetops which withers before it grows up with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arm. What, what this is referring to is the way that houses would have been built in ancient Israel, where uh, they would have had a flat roof, and um, uh, branches and brush would have been placed, used as the roof, and then they would have mudded over the top of that. And so in the spring, when it rains, uh, the roofs would have begun to sprout, grass would begin to sprout, but then in the heat of summer it would wither and die and there would be no lasting fruit. So the psalmist is saying, may our enemies be like the grass on the roof in the summertime. May they be withered and, and unusable. And then finally, the psalm says, nor do those who pass by them say the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. What we see in the book of Ruth is that this was sort of a standard greeting. The blessing of the Lord be upon you. But for the enemies of God's people, those afflicting God's people, the psalmist cries out, let them not receive a blessing, but rather be left in the hands of God. Let them be left to his justice. They want those who perpetrate evil to be stopped and their efforts to be thwarted. So what does that mean for us? And what does that mean, especially for Gen Z? What, what I think it means is that we don't deny 
or ignore or sugarcoat the reality of sin and pain and evil in our world. But neither do we believe that that sin, that pain, that evil is the final word. It's, it's legitimate to acknowledge the reality of evil, to point out injustice, to speak about affliction. In fact, we have to do that because um, the cross is an affront to evil, both its source and its effects. And while we acknowledge evil and its effects both in our world and in our lives, we must clearly understand that there's a difference between being a victim and playing the victim. Acknowledging the reality of evil resulting in sinfulness which leads to abuse and oppression and trauma and immorality of all kinds and ultimately an attack on God and his glory is never wrong. It is vital that we, that we point out those realities. But acknowledging victimization is seen in moving from this sense of disorientation to reorientation. The psalm acknowledges the reality of affliction, but then cries out to God for justice and for relief. He's not content to remain in that place of disorientation. It may take a long time to see healing, but playing the victim only leads to bitterness, to anger, to malice and retaliation, not to healing, not to forgiveness, not to reconciliation. So remember that sin and sinfulness are not only in the world around you. Um, <laughs> when we talk about those things, we're not just talking about things happening to us. They're in us. Sin, brokenness, our own sinfulness are, are realities too. If we could see the world as God does, we would realize that we have all been sinned against, but we have also all grievously sinned against others. And so verses 5 through 8 are a prayer that God would turn back the effort of those who are opposed to God and all the forms of evil that they seek to perpetuate. It is right and good for us to oppose evil in all its forms and to pray against its spread. It is also important and vital that we remember that ultimately Jesus was a victim of evil. Jesus is the ultimate victim. Jesus was falsely accused he was betrayed, he was abandoned, he was beaten, he was crucified and buried. It was the ultimate attempt to cancel someone and defeat good for the sake of sin. And yet, while that was happening to him, Jesus did not lament his condition, but he cried out, my God, my God, forgive them for they do not know what they do. We have a prayer in the face of trouble. But the third final thing that the psalm points us to is a hope in the midst of trouble. When we remember Jesus, it enables us to both pursue healing but also to pray against the evil that God and his people's enemies seek to do. Pray against the evil that people seek to do. But also it encourages us to repent and to turn to God. Remember what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your enemy, or you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If somebody blesses you or curses you, bless them in response. What Jesus is showing is that we can both pray against evil and those who are the enemies of God and also pray for our enemies. The hope and the resilience needed to do this is found only in the gospel, which we see the shadow of in Psalm 129. 
In verse 3, the psalmist says, they have plowed my back. And I've already said this, that it's talking about there's lines, you know, the deep furrows across his back. The lines from being whipped or scourged. Jesus sympathizes. Right? Psalm 50, or Isaiah 53 talks about Jesus in these words. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes we are healed. As he goes to the cross, Jesus is scourged, he is whipped. That's what Psalm 3, or verse 3 of this psalm is, is ultimately kind of showing us in shadow. Verse 2, though, the psalmist says, Greatly have they, have, have they afflicted me from my youth, but I'm still here. They have not prevailed against me. I, I've had Elton John's song in, all week in my head, I'm still standing. <laughs> That's what this psalm is saying. It's talking about resilience. Though I have been beaten, though there are lines on my back, I'm still standing. Why is that possible? Verse 4 says, Because the Lord is righteous, he cuts the cords of the wicked. He cuts the cords that the wicked had bound us with and set us free. So where does God do that? Well, we see that most clearly in the cross. It's as Jesus goes to the cross that he is scourged where there are lines plowed into his back. It's on the cross that Jesus is afflicted where he is hemmed in on every side, where he is squeezed, where he faces trouble. It's on the cross that Jesus buys our freedom. It's on the cross that he breaks the power of sin, that he cuts the cords of our affliction. None of us can stand before God by our own righteousness, but Jesus took the curse that was placed upon all of us, upon himself, and he stood in our place before the judge of all the earth. Paul says in Romans 5, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the good news of the gospel. This gives us a secure place to not only stand, but to rest. Jesus didn't just die on the cross so that we could sort of go along on our merry way. He died on the cross so that we could be his people. And that we could demonstrate to a watching world the hope of the gospel which transforms lives and enables us to live with resilience and hope in a world that is filled with trouble. I love the words of Jesus in John 16. Uh, Jesus has been talking to his disciples and his disciples kind of come and say, you know, sometimes you say things that are really confusing. And, and, and Jesus says, I'm not always going to explain, I'm not always going to speak to you in confusing ways. Uh, and then he says something else. But then, then he says this. He says, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. I'm telling you what I'm telling you so that you may have peace. In this world, you, ha- you will have tribulation. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, he says. Take heart. Now, how would you finish that statement if, if, it, was, you know, if it was you speaking to a child? You know, in this world, you're going to have trouble, so get used to it. <laughs> or, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. It's, it's not really going to be that bad. Like, you can do it, little soldier. Um, you just got to have a stiff upper, stiff upper lip and, and get, get through it. But that's not what Jesus says. 
He says, in this world you have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The hope that he offers us is this trust in the one who has overcome the world. The one who stands outside of our world and its trouble enters into it to take upon himself the sin and affliction of our world and to set us free. And that is what allows us to live with hope in a world where sin and affliction are still very much a reality. And this is the good news of the gospel. So I want to finish by asking this. What does that mean for Gen Z? And um, how, how does this help Gen Z to be the faithful generation God is calling them to be? And again, I'm going to shift a little bit here because in past sermons, I've really tried to apply uh, the psalm particularly to the generation we're talking about. But this morning, what I want to do is I want to apply it to most of us that are older than Gen Z. What does this mean for us as we encourage our Gen Z brothers and sisters and children and grandchildren towards loving commitment. And there are a, a handful of things that I want to share with you, mostly coming from the article I mentioned earlier on the, uh, the fear of um, FOBO, the fear of a better offer. So first, we need to make sure that we consistently model integrity in our commitment to Christ and his, in his um, kingdom. I'm reminded of a quote um, from Brendan Manning, who wrote the, uh, the, the Ragamuffin Gospel many years ago, and he said this, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And I think we have to grapple with the reality that Gen Z, um, the teenagers in our church are Gen Z. Uh, I have three kids that are Gen Z. Uh, I have one who's younger. Uh, <laughs> but Gen Z is looking to older Christians and wondering if our faith is genuine. And it's our hypocrisy that shatters that faith. They don't expect us to be perfect, but our willingness to repent and our willingness to sacrifice for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom in the face of trouble is what will inspire faith in them. Younger generation is always going to look to an older generation and say, do you actually believe this when it matters? And that's up to us. Secondly, we need to make sure that we consistently model faithfulness in our own commitment to them. And I'm speaking here to myself um, <laughs> when, um, you know, do you rub shoulders with young people, Gen Zers in, your, in our church, uh, maybe at work, maybe in your family? Maybe they are your children, your grandchildren. Do you treat appointments and commitments to them with the same level of seriousness that you do to others? You know, when my kids say, hey, dad, would you come play soccer with me? And I'm like, yeah, maybe. We'll see. We'll see how the day goes. <laughs> and then we're like, why don't you commit to anything? Why can't you stick with it? <laughs> oh, I'm doing the same thing. And we have to honor our commitments to them. Thirdly, we need to express encouragement when younger people demonstrate loving commitment. Do we see uh, Gen Zers volunteering regularly at our church? What would it look like for us to express gratitude to them? Has a young person reached out to you? or shown an interest in spending time with you, what would it look like to pursue those relationships? 
make sure that you tell them how grateful you are for their initiative and make it a priority to fit in time with them. Fourth, we need to lovingly share how we experience the effects of FOBO, the fear of better options, from young people. You know, when I take the initiative to ask a student to get lunch and the response is, a text response is like, yeah, probably we'll see. <laughs> that hurts. <laughs> and it takes courage to say, that hurts. But when we communicate that and we're willing to have that hard conversation gently, lovingly, it, we might end up being the only person in their lives who has loved them enough to say so. And then finally, we need to be patient and empathetic. I said this earlier, but it is a reality that we are doing sort of a untested generational experience on the role of technology in childhood on an entire generation. And there are real reasons for Gen Z's anxieties and struggle for, with keeping commitments. So we have to keep these in mind as we interact with these students. They're fighting a battle that we may not truly understand. So let me finish by saying this. The whole reason we're doing this series is to think about what does it look like for us as a church, for Trinity to begin looking towards the future and asking the question of how will we live together and how will we do ministry together and how will we disciple one another going forward. Loving one another across generations is going to come at a cost to everyone. For Gen Z, this may mean a willingness to commit in spite of fear of missing out on something better. For older generations, it might mean practicing patience and empathy, for not ro learning how to not roll our eyes, for learning how to be committed in the face of a lack of commitment. But for each of us, it means investing in these relationships despite our differences, because each of us has been loved this way by Jesus himself. He is the one, ultimately, who has laid down his life in order to love us. And that's what he's calling us to do for each other. Amen. Would you pray with me? Oh, Jesus, we thank you for your incredible faithfulness to us. We thank you that you showed your love for us by laying down your life. When it was doing you no good when you were getting nothing out of it. You um, endured trouble and affliction in order to cut the cords that bound us in sin and death. And so we thank you for the goodness of the gospel. We pray that um, the reality of what you have done for us on the cross would characterize our dealings with each other. And God, we pray especially for this generation of 10 to 25-year-olds that um, those of us who are older uh, would model the sort of commitment and sacrifice that the gospel calls forth from us so that they might not just hear the words of the gospel, but they might see lives that have been transformed by the gospel. And that they would grow up as resilient followers of Jesus in a world where trouble is a reality. We thank you, Jesus, that you have overcome the world. We pray in your name. Amen.